Our reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray together. Father, we beg you to come and send your spirit to work in us this morning. Help us to hear what you have said. Help us to understand and may it change us. Uh, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin uh, by talking about something that happens to me at some point pretty much every week. And um, that is driving on autopilot. And I'm not talking about self-driving cars. And I'm not talking about the utilization of automated vehicle technology. I'm talking about those times when uh, you're driving somewhere and you just sort of automatically uh, take a familiar route. Like for me, driving to the church. When what you're actually doing is taking your daughter to ballet. You're, you're on autopilot. And you're, you're driving, but you're not really paying attention to what you're doing. You're not focusing on the task at hand. And apparently there's more dangerous versions of this. I've, I've, I've heard uh, when you're on the interstate, they call this highway hypnosis or my favorite white line fever. Uh, but we've all had that experience haven't we? where you just zone out and uh, you forget where you're headed and you're just on autopilot, just going the normal way that you always go. And something like that tends to happen when we read passages of scripture, especially dense ones. Even if we're new to the Christian faith, we have a few ideas about what Christianity is all about. And uh, we just go the familiar route. We don't even think about it. We're not paying attention to the route that the passage is taking us on. We're not focusing on where it's going. 
And what that requires of us is that we pay close attention. So where is Paul going with all of this this morning? And this is what he tells us in verse 20, the last little bit. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, that's a very tame way of putting it. Grace abounded all the more. In the Greek, it's hyperabounded. It's superabounded. It's like grace got on steroids. It's over the top abounding. So however dark and difficult the route, Paul is leading us to this destination, marveling at the superabounding grace given to us in Christ Jesus. Let's remember that as we're traveling this road. Now, many dissertations have been written on this text. So many questions that it raises, so many tricky parts. I have 30 minutes with you. I'm going to do my best to boil it down without dumbing it down, but don't get your hopes up. Okay, so let me just say a few things up front uh, to kind of get these out of the way and also help orient us on the route that we're taking. The first is this. I believe that the scriptures treat Adam as a real historical figure. That seems to be the way the Old Testament talks about him. He shows up in genealogies. He shows up that in genealogies in the New Testament as well. Seems to be the way Paul talks about him, not only here, but in 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, one or two other places. It seems to be the way Jesus talks about him in Matthew chapter 19. So that's how I'm going to talk about him. And if you want to talk about other things related to that, let's do that offline. Again, 30 minutes, dissertations, don't get your hopes up. But here's the second thing. I want you to notice that there hasn't been a single command in the book of Romans so far. For five whole chapters. And I want you to think about that just for a second. No do this is. No do that. None of that so far. There's all kinds of implications about what we should and shouldn't do, of course. But no explicit commands yet. And for some of you, you need to hear that because Christianity may not be what you think it is. And I heard a pastor once say that the North American church is completely unhealthy. Little knowledge of the Bible, little knowledge of theology, very thin and shallow. And what the result is, is with the least amount of opposition, the tree of faith just falls. Because it's not rooted. So I want us to not rush past what we've been reading in the first five chapters of Romans. Because they are given to us in order to root us. And if we want to rush past it and get to the good stuff, you know, the application, just give me, give me some application here, you know, tell me what to do in my life. Then you're going to miss the rooting that is going to make you sturdy. And here's the last thing I want to say. Many scholars think that this passage we're looking at this morning is like an extended commentary on two verses in 1 Corinthians 15. Those verses are verse 21 and 22, and this is how they read. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul is dividing the human race into two communities. And guess what? 
It's not Jew and Gentile. It's not Asian and European. It's not male and female. And it's not techies and fuzzies. That's not how he breaks it down here. It is in Adam or in Christ. And I love that because that's spatial imagery. Paul loves spatial imagery. He'll talk about being under law or under wrath. And he'll talk about being under grace. And you know what? We love spatial imagery too. We talk about being on cloud nine or behind the eight ball or in hot water or in love. And those last two are pretty significant because when you think about being in hot water, you mean like trouble is pressing in on me all around. Like I'm in deep. When we talk about being in love, we mean being in this environment of feeling that begins to determine everything about us. Paul's favorite spatial metaphor is in Christ. And he uses it over 150 times in his letters. In fact, we could say that being in Christ is the central truth at the core of the doctrine of salvation. And this is what we got to get this morning. We are born in Adam, but we are reborn in Christ. And what what Romans 5 is all about is Paul laboring to show us that in Adam we have condemnation, but in Christ we have justification. You're like, okay, we've been talking about justification for weeks now. Why are we still talking about it? Because Paul is still talking about it and because we don't get it yet. And a few weeks ago, we looked at how Paul went back to the story of Abraham. But this morning, he takes us all the way back to the story of Adam. Now, this passage can be a little hard to follow, but it's easier to understand if you'll notice that Paul begins by starting to make a comparison in verse 12. Therefore, just as, but you really don't get the so also until verse 18. He breaks off into a digression In verses 13 through 17 for a reason. And he wants to say, I want to make this comparison between Adam and Christ, but I got, I got to make sure you know all the ways that they're different. And that's what he's doing in verses 13 through 17. And it's helpful if you want to read it for yourself, just pay attention to the not likes and the much mores in verses 13 and 17 and pay attention to the just as and the so also's in verses 18 through 21. But don't forget, Paul is leading us to this destination, grace that superabounds. And he sticks the landing in verse 21. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we got a two-pointer this morning. Isn't that good? Not three points. Two points. Breaking from Presbyterian tradition. And what I want to talk about is the reign of sin and death and the reign of grace in life. Or what we have in Adam and what we have in Christ. So let's talk about the reign of sin and death. Verse 12 is a mouthful. And it's not talking about the origin of all evil. It's talking about the entrance of evil into the human situation. Okay, there's a lot of mystery and there's a lot of good conversations we can have about the origin of evil. But this is talking about an intrusion into God's good creation 
the entrance of sin into the human situation. And I want you to notice, Paul says it happens through one man. One man, through one act, gave sin access into the world of humanity. Now, uh, for some of you, uh, this illustration is not going to land, but I think for some of you it will. Uh, I like to think in imageries and, 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 and movies and references, uh, shows. And uh, I kind of think of this like the gate that got opened in Stranger Things. You know the portal where it's opened and then all of a sudden what comes in? The Demogorgon, you know, from the upside down. What comes, what comes flowing in? The mind flayer, right? I mean, this is scary stuff. And this is the idea that Paul is getting at because you know what he does with the notion of sin? He personifies it. Do you notice? It enters. And then what does it do? It takes over and reigns. Verse 20. Paul talks about sin as a personified power quite often. Here it enters and then it takes over and reigns. Uh, Next week we're going to see in chapter 6 that it can be obeyed. Verse 20 of chapter 6. That it pays wages. The wages of sin is death. Verse 23. It seizes opportunity. That's chapter 7, verses 8 and 11. It deceives. That's chapter 7, verse 11 as well. It kills. Chapter 7, verse 12. And it even is described by Paul as dwelling in people. Chapter 7, verse 20. This is sin. A power that once it enters in, it takes over and it rules. And sin always has a traveling companion. And you know what Paul says it is? Death. Sin is a villain. Death is its weapon. People are its victims. And the entrance of sin into the human situation, Paul writes, happened through the one act of one man. And you say, whoa, 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 hold on a second. And this is what we're going to have to get if we want to understand uh, Paul's uh, words here. Is that Adam was acting as our representative. Now, there's there's a whole lot of theological, um, you know, uh, language that gets surrounded this. But he is the covenant head, right? He's the federal head of the family. Like, this is how we talk about it. And where that that comes from is uh, from a Latin word uh, that we get our word federal from. So you think about the federal government, right? That's how we refer to our government. And we talk about being a democracy. We're not a pure democracy. If we were a pure democracy, we would vote on everything all the time and that would be exhausting and actually counterproductive. But we have representatives that we choose and they act on our behalf. And this is what, this is where we get hung up as we say, but I didn't choose Adam. We're all about the vote. (laughs) I didn't choose him. But I want you to think about what we might be saying when, when we start to object like that, what we're saying is either I would have done better or I could have chosen a better representative. Now, how does that sound coming out of our mouths? God appointed Adam as our covenant representative. And one man representing us is going to be pretty important in just a moment. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize that humanity is pretty messed up, and it is so from the get-go. 
In fact, I was reading this week and I came across uh, this Time Magazine article uh, from 2001. And it was called Science and Original Sin. And uh, it, it, what this, this article did was it kind of talked about how evolutionary biology is beginning uh, to actually say, hmm, it seems like we have a hereditary dark side. Uh, that there are these impulses in us that they're baked in and they do have some social advantages. But it kind of puts us in a quandary because we want to say those things are wrong. And yet those things are just here to stay with us. And they're there from the get-go. And somehow they've enabled us to survive uh, by eliminating that which would threaten our lives. And so it's not saying like, oh, we've now come to prove the doctrine of original sin. But what they're saying is we're observing something about us that is very hard to ignore. And we're trying to make sense of it. Or uh, get this, George Steiner, who was a professor in English departments, I believe it like Harvard, uh, Oxford, and Cambridge, and uh, member of the editorial staff at The Economist uh, for years and years. In his quasi-autobiography, he says these words, At the maddening center of despair is the insistent instinct, again, I can put it no other way, of a broken contract. Maybe we could say broken covenant. Something, how helpless language can be, has gone hideously wrong. Reality should, could have been otherwise. The impotent fury, the guilt which master and surpass my identity, carry with them the working hypothesis, the working metaphor, if you will, of original sin. I don't believe George Steiner is a Christian. Or how about this one, Blaise Pascal reflecting upon the one act that brings the reign of sin and death, said, without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. In other words, it may not make sense in and of itself when you just look at it by itself, but oh, by it, you begin to make sense of so much else. However you construe it, we are all observing the same thing. And what Paul is saying is that through the one act of the one man, sin and death came in and took over. And it has brought ruin. Now, I, I share this story often when we're uh, doing our intro to grace class about uh, a debate I was at when I was at college at the University of Tennessee. And uh, this debate had a uh, Jewish rabbi, it had a Muslim imam, it had a Pentecostal Christian, it had an atheist, And then it had a Satanist who was on a very broken up video feed. And it was all about religion and the life of the academy. And uh, it was really weird. Uh, And uh, at one point they started talking about, are we fundamentally good or are we fundamentally broken? And uh, pretty much everybody was like, no, no, we're innately good, right? It is society, right? Or it's our parents, Or it's the influences of culture that have actually led us bad. And we need to kind of clean that stuff up. And the Pentecostal Christian didn't say anything. And after everybody had kind of, you know, said their piece, uh, someone's like, hey, what what does the pastor have to say? So they gave him the microphone and he just sort of said, look, all I can tell you is I have five children. Yes, five. And he said, never once have I ever had to tell them or teach them how to lie. And then he put the microphone down and it was like very quiet in there because what you realize is kids don't have to be taught how to lie or have to, or how to say mine, 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 like the seagulls in finding Nemo, right? It's just in us. 
that Adam acted as our head, that sin and death came in and they took over and they reign. They rule. They determine our lives. And we fight. And we struggle. But it's in us. Both the guilt and the corruption of Adam is passed to us. Because he is the one man acting as our representative. And as a result, sin reigns in death, Paul says. Sin was in the world even before the law was given to mark it out. That's what he's talking about in verses 13 and 14. And the proof of it is death. Go back and read Genesis and the genealogies. What's the refrain that said over and over again? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. The reign of sin and death. Sobering. But here's the thing. Paul's not just trying to take us down, you know, a, a, a dark alley and leave us there. He's not, he's not trying to be a downer. What he's trying to get us to is to see that God shows up and he brings his grace to meet the power of sin and death. And his grace Superabound. So let's talk about the reign of grace in life. In Jesus, the reign of sin and death is toppled. And the reign of grace begins. What does that mean? Well, at the very least, it means that you and I can receive the gift of a righteous status before God. That's how he talks about this in verse 16, in verse 17, in verse 18, in verse 19. And then he ties it all up in a bow in verse 21 when he says the gift of eternal life. When grace reigns through righteousness, it leads to eternal life. And this is the thing we got to see. Christ didn't begin where Adam begun. This isn't a do-over. This isn't a start from scratch. Christ enters an environment ruined by Adam's sin And the many sins of Adam's descendants. Do you notice how that language shows up in this passage? That this is the work of Jesus Christ is to undo the curse that had fallen upon us because of Adam. And because of us. And you might say, well, but what about all that law business? And you notice Paul anticipates that because what he says is, The law came to increase the trespass. And you're saying, what in the world does that mean? And Paul isn't dissing on the law. He's highlighting one vitally important function. Increasing the trespass involves three things. It means when the law came in, sin was better known and recognized because it's better defined and therefore seen. And it's also made more serious because now sin is exposed as openly defiant and deliberately disobedient. You know this, those of you who are parents, right? Your kid is just in a fuss and you, then you say what? You say, don't do that. Okay, now you've made it very clear. And now when they do that, it's exposing, oh, this is open defiance. This isn't just being... Wrapped around the axle of emotions. This is like my will against yours. The law comes in and it exposes that. But you know what else? 
It increases the trespass in the sense that sin grows greater in quantity. And you might say, okay, that's weird. But listen to these words of C.E.B. Cranfield. The law, by challenging human beings' self-centeredness, provokes it to more frantic activity in self-defense. It agitates. I heard a story once, a pastor friend of mine that said that when he was in the fourth grade, his teacher was giving all these rules for the classrooms and and then added, now, just because I didn't say you can't do this or you can't do that doesn't mean it's okay to do that. Like, I don't want you swinging from the lights in here, right? You should just know that. And this guy said, you know, I never once thought of swinging from the lights in my fourth grade classroom. But from that day forward until the rest of the year, that is all I could think about. The law provokes. It brings out what is inside of us. It increases the trespass. And this was part of God's purpose. It's not the only role of the law, but it is one vitally important function. And this is why. For salvation to be seen for what it really is, sin has to be seen for what it really is. The work of the law is not part of the disease. It's part of the cure. And what it shows us is how deadly serious our sin really is. But how superabounding God's grace really is in Jesus Christ. You know, Israel was in Adam too, as the law painfully pointed out. She flunked the covenant over and over and over again. The law did its work. It showed sin's true colors. And then Jesus, the faithful Israelite, shows up. And he does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He topples the tyranny of sin and death. And he brings the reign of grace and life over us. How does it happen? Well, through one trespass, we receive condemnation. Both by our covenant representation in Adam, but also by the many, many sins that we commit. But through one act of righteousness, which is really a summary of Jesus' whole life culminating in his faithful obedience in the cross. We receive justification. And we get it in Christ. You know what else comes with Christ? Not just forgiveness, not just righteousness, but cleansing and renewal. And favor and love and affection. And ultimately eternal life. That's where the reign of grace and life ends. Eternal life with God. Have you ever just sat back and asked yourself, what reigns over my life? What calls the shots? What says I'm in charge here? For some of us, it's our shame. It's been bullying us our entire life. And we've not been able to deal with it, right? For others of us, right, it's our insecurity. Never feeling like we measure up. Never feeling like if people really knew that they would love us. For still others of us, it's our doubt. We're just riddled with confusion. But do you know what you can have in Christ? You can have an answer to all of that. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. 
It's not about your ability to scrub yourself clean of your shame. It's about his ability to make you clean, whiter than snow, the Bible says. It's not about building up a resume so you can feel secure and assured in yourself. It's about receiving the love and favor that God has for you despite all that. And knowing that you can move forward in confidence in the world because you are right with the most important person in the universe. Who are you in? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? That's the challenge that we have to wrestle with. And here's the thing about being in Christ. It's free. Here it's five times after verse 15. Paul calls it the free gift. 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 That's five. Free gift. Right? What is Paul saying? He's saying it's free. It's yours for the taking. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to jump through any hoops. You don't have to dance a little ditty, right? It is yours for the taking. And it only happens when we come face to face with the tyranny of sin and death in our lives. And we say, God, there's nothing I can do about this. But I will receive what you have for me. How do we get in Christ? By trusting in what he has done for us. We receive the free gift of righteousness. And you know what? Some of you right now, and I know it because we, we talk about this. You're like, you know what? This kind of stuff, it just makes people say like, awesome. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. Sweet deal. Uh, this will just make people just throw caution to the wind and do whatever they want. And, and let me just say this. Iron is going to fix all that mess next week when we get to Romans 6. But you know you're understanding Paul rightly when the question that starts popping up in your mind is the very question he goes on to address next. Don't muddle the free gift. Don't settle for substitutes. Don't let anyone... Take away from you the beauty and the glory of what is yours, free for the taking, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the reign of grace. It is the rule of eternal life. And it comes through the righteousness that is ours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word and for its challenging and even provoking nature. Um, God, there's business that we have to do with you, and it's a business that doesn't involve us showing up with hands full, uh, brokering a deal or negotiating a contract. It is about us showing up empty-handed and saying, God, please fill me. And you are more than willing. That our covenant representative, Jesus Christ, has done all that is necessary through his one act of righteousness, through his faithful obedience, through his glorious work, we can have grace reigning over us. And God, we ask that not only would that be true of us today, but that we would feel it's true and that it would begin to liberate us in all, way, all sorts of ways that we couldn't even possibly imagine. And we pray this, God, not only for our good, but for your glory. Uh, You are the great God who has done great things for your people. So magnify your name and do it in us. 
as we come to marvel at your superabounding grace in Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.